Welcome once again to Evidence-Based Radio. I am still recording from my bedroom, but um, let us not dwell upon that. (laughs) As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. And so we are going to take a break from the infectious disease watch this week. I am already stressed out about the new CDC uh, guidelines. Uh, They make me very grumpy and I'm stressed out about other things too. So yeah, Uh, people I know are getting side effects from the monkeypox vaccine, which is not great. Uh, Still better than getting the infection but still a bummer as well. And so I just want to concentrate on some neat and interesting things tonight. And so we're going to be talking a lot about color and visualization and um, how to perceive things. And I think it's going to be interesting. I've been enjoying kind of uh, exploring more material sciences recently. And so all of this is going to be kind of around that subject. So let's start with the story that I did not get to last week. Butterfly wings, beetle shells, and other items in nature are colored, not by pigment molecules, but with the very structure of the material, what physics call photonic crystals. So this is structural color. And this has been mimicked in the lab, but most processes lacked scalability. So you could create small scale things, but in order to create something that would then be manufacturable, hasn't really been uh, available. And so MIT scientists think they have now cracked the code. They adapted techniques from 19th century holographic photography to develop a material that changes color when stretched. This material is easily scalable with preservation of the nanoscale optical precision. They described the work in a paper recently published in the journal Nature Materials. Nature performs the feat using scales of chitin arranged like roof tiles. They form a kind of diffraction grating, but rather than producing a whole spectrum of color photonic of colors, photonic crystals produce a specific color wavelength. So that's how you get that incredible blue in morpho uh, blue butterflies and how you get those really interesting colors on different kinds of beetles and things like that. Uh, those really beautiful uh like emerald greens of some. And so, yeah. Also known as photonic band gap materials, they are quote-unquote tunable, creating a precise arrangement that blocks certain wavelengths and absorbs others. Now you can change the wavelength emitted by changing the size of the tiles. 
And so as you might figure, this has been an active area for biomimicry, which is my new favorite thing. (laughs) I hope you will bear with me for a while. And it has applications in optical sensing and visual communications, which would benefit from structurally colored materials, which then change color in response to mechanical manipulation. Co-author Benjamin Miller, a grad student at MIT, had kind of a eureka moment when he discovered an exhibit on holography at the MIT Museum. Delving into the history of holography, he found the work of French physicist Gabriel Lippmann. In 1886, Lippmann became interested in finding a way to photograph the colors of a solar spectrum. After a bunch of trial and error, he achieved his goal in 1891 and produced several color photographs, including that of a stained glass window, a colorful parrot, excuse me, and a self-portrait. Now, he achieved the color photographs with a process that involved the image passing through a glass plate coated with a transparent emulsion of silver halide grains attached to a liquid mercury mirror, or I think uh, immersed in a liquid mercury mirror. This allowed the light to travel through the emulsion, hit the mirror, and be reflected back into the emulsion. Now, of course, don't try this at home, kids. Mercury is very dangerous, uh, even though I have to say um, I have a very vivid recollection of my uh, high school physics professor just kind of playing with some in his hand one day and then uh, using it to, um, I can't remember if it was the mercury, if it was something else, but um, I think it was, he used the mercury and uh, he nickel-plated a penny. And I just remember that uh, there was this plume of green-brown, uh, um, you know, smoke that welled up. And he was like, oh, yeah, don't don't breathe that in. And he was doing this in the middle of the classroom, nowhere near a uh, hood, an exhaust hood, nowhere near anything. Um yeah, that was an interesting class. I uh, That was AP Physics, and I did not do very well on the test <laughs> because he didn't really, um, yeah, he was, oh, that was a trip. He was definitely, I don't think, very well qualified to teach young children. Oh, goodness, um, the wild days of yesteryear. Um. Anyways, <laughs> and so the resulting interference pattern exposed the emulsion at different depths, encoding that pattern into the emulsion. After several minutes of exposure, the plate was removed from the liquid mercury and processed. To view the image, one turned the plate upside down, attached a prism to the surface, and then lit the plate from the front at a perpendicular angle with white light. And so this would cause the laminate to to reflect the light waves that had made the original interference pattern. So pretty, uh, you know, labor intensive, but it was cool to have uh, the ability to capture that color. Uh, 
But of course, because of that, the process never really caught on. But of course, holographic materials have continued to evolve and develop. And um, one of the other things that I saw recently, uh, or one of the things I saw recently in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, it's not really a hologram, but it was this amazing piece where someone had taken glass and created a kind of a wedge shape and embedded it in the glass was a single um, sort of plane of um, an image of what looked, it was abstract, but it kind of looked like rocks. And when you moved around the piece, your perspective would change every time and your ability, what you could see and how the um, flat plane looked it, you know, had all of these 3D characteristics that were fascinating. It's so amazing. Um, if you are in uh, Boston uh, anytime soon, it was in um, one of the rooms for modern art. I don't remember which one, I'm sorry. But um, yeah, it was really amazing. Um, and you kind of have to experience it. I had to take a video in order to even make sense of it for anyone else. And so, yeah, very awesome. And I do uh, unfortunately not know the artist, but it, it's just so fascinating what people can do with, um, you know, crystals and optics and things like that. And so the team... Uh, back to uh, our holographs, the team was able to use a projector to imply images to a commercial elastomeric photopolymer placed against an aluminum sheet. Once the images were created, they were able to peel the holographic film off of the sheet and stuck it to a black elastic silicone substrate. When stretched, the colors change since the stretching and thinning of the film cause the nanoscale structure to reconfigure. It shows red where things are thinnest, shifting to blue where they are thickest. Pressing things into the red film, like a finger, left detailed green imprints. Now that we've cleared this scaling hurdle, we can explore questions like, can we use this material to make robotic skin that has a human-like sense of touch? And can we create touch-sensing devices for things like virtual augmented reality or medical training, said Miller. It's a big space we're looking at now. One application would be, for instance, to create bandages that change color in response to pressure making it easy to see if a bandage is too tight. It would also make it more fun for children to deal with first aid if they had, uh, you know, band-aids and bandages that they could poke at um, and, you know, were color changing and, you know, color changed when they stretched. Uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of a silly thing, but it's also kind of a good thing because, you know, anything that kind of reduces the trauma of being hurt for children is definitely a good thing for adults too, obviously, but, um, and so other applications of course would be, for instance, in the fashion world. Um, I'm sure there's lots of things that people 
could immediately start to use that for. Now, one of the other things they found that it could do was they found that it could encode secret messages using red light during exposure to create infrared images that could be read when the film was stretched. So that is pretty amazing. So, um, yeah, um, very cool. I love that kind of thing. And so I'm looking forward to seeing more of it in the future. And speaking of seeing colors, a new study from researchers at Los Alamos National Laboratory have discovered that a famous theory about the mathematics of how the eye perceives color is actually wrong. The assumed shape of color space requires a paradigm shift, said Roxana Bujak, a computer scientist with a background in mathematics who created who creates scientific visualizations at Los Alamos and who is the lead author of the paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Our research shows that the current mathematical model of how the eye perceives color, color differences is incorrect. That model was suggested by Bernhard Riemann and developed by Hermann von Helmholtz and Erwin Schrodinger, all giants in mathematics and physics, and proving one of them wrong is pretty much the dream of a scientist, she noted. Um, because, of course, that is a big thing in science, is that we are constantly trying to find new and more correct ways of perceiving the world. And uh, as much as some people would like to portray it, you are absolutely not trying to uh, rest on the laurels of people who have come before you. You are very much trying as a scientist to discover issues and to find better ways. And that's the absolute uh, core of science. And that's what makes science so good and so right is that it is constantly interrogating itself, unlike other modes of thinking uh, often. Okay, so the next so um what they found uh was that they realized that the application of Riemannian geometry which allows generalizing straight lines to curved surfaces didn't work. So that's exact so that's the exact thing that they found is that the geometry that people have used doesn't work. To create industry standards, a precise mathematical model of perceived color space is needed. Now, uh, historically, first, they used Euclidean spaces, and that's the kind of uh, geometry you probably learned in high school. Now, more advanced models then moved on to um, Riemannian geometry. Now, both models plot red, green, and blue in 3D spaces. So as you probably know, those are the colors that are uh, have the most cones and um, in your eyes. I believe it's cones. It might be rods. Um, I feel silly for not remembering which one it is. But um, <laughs> anyways, 
And so red, green, and blue are the sort of primary colors. And therefore, as you probably also know, most TVs and computer monitors use RGB mixes to create all of the other colors that you see. It's actually pretty amazing how just three primary colors can be mixed to show everything else that is out there. Now, the study, which blended psychology, biology, and mathematics, found that using Riemannian geometry overestimates the perception of large color differences. People perceive big differences as less different than the sum of the mathematical difference. So if you have two colors that are very different, when people actually perceive them psychologically, they don't see as big of a dramatic difference as a um, as a uh, algorithm would if it looked at all of the differences between the different colors that came in the sort of spectrum between those two colors. And that's the issue. And so, yeah, very interesting. We didn't expect this, and we don't know the exact geometry of this new color space yet, Bujak said. We might be able to think of it normally, but with an added dampening or weighing function that pulls long distances in, making them shorter. But we can't prove it yet. So that's a neat thing that we will hopefully see in the future. Better color visualization. Um, and so, yeah, I am super excited about that because, again, it's this great example of how uh, scientists can sometimes stumble upon something that everybody thinks works, and then all of a sudden they realize, oh, wait, no, it doesn't. And so, yeah, and it might lead to even better uh, televisions and computer monitors and things like that that will give us better uh, color ranges. So I'm all for that. So let's move on now and talk about false colors and especially in um, astronomical photography. Now, I say false colors, but that's just the sort of, uh, you know, popular nomenclature for it. But really, they are not false. And so I wanted to talk about this. And, you know, part of the reason that this is something that I think is important to talk about is it's one of those places where people tend to be uh, kind of ridiculous about, for instance, doubting the pictures that come out of NASA because they're like, oh, well, people have to, you know, create it and it's just, you know, CGI. It's not actually photographs. It's not actually what you would see when you go out there, which is, of course, true. Because it's not that kind of light doesn't work that way. You can't just go and look for visible light from galaxies that are hundreds of light years away. That's not how that works. <laughs> That's not how any of that works. And so um, obviously NASA has to do processing of the imagery and it is absolutely 100% scientific and absolutely 100% real. So yeah. And of course, 
a big one, a big reason why people are talking about it is with the release of that first set of photographs from the Webb telescope. And um, as I've mentioned, uh, remember that is the David Webb, uh, aka Jason Bourne, uh, not James Webb telescope. So <laughs> I have renamed it um, in my own uh, reality, uh, taking a page from um, Adam Savage. <laughs> Now, of course, the web doesn't view things in the visible spectrum, so you have to have processing. The web looks out toward the far reaches of the universe and collects infrared and near-infrared light. And so it's up to what are called image developers to turn the data from the telescope into a gorgeous picture that we can all admire and get excited about. Now, they do this by assigning various infrared wavelengths to colors on the vis visible spectrum. But again, they don't do this arbitrarily. Something I've been trying to change people's minds about is to stop getting hung up on the idea of, is this what it would look like if I could fly out there in a spaceship and look at it? Said Joe DePascal, a senior data image developer at the Space Telescope Science Institute, in a phone call with Gizmodo. You don't ask a biologist if you can somehow shrink down to the size of a cell and look at the coronavirus. I'm sure someone has, though, <laughs> in this day and age. And so, uh, for instance, those first uh, very orangey-tinted images of the Large Magellanic Cloud uh, used a limited red to yellow visible spectrum because the object was to see different features in the cloud and to test the alignment of the mirrors. And so there wasn't a need for a full spectrum treatment because that's not what those images were for. They weren't for being um, properly studied as far as the very fine details. They were just a calibration. And so now, with images being released both to the public and to researchers, um, they need to be full spectrum. Because even for researchers, sometimes you want to be able to find, you can find better details by looking at them in that visible light spectrum. And so, of course, visible light is a tiny part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And so light that was once visible from distant galaxies has actually been redshifted toward the infrared spectrum. And so that's why a lot of telescopes are now created that gather radio, ultraviolet, X-ray, and infrared light, among others. Visible light telescopes obviously still exist and are still very, very cool, and there's been some great new mirror technology that is also helping them to see more and further, just like the web. But all of these other color spectrums are also very present and very good to be able to uh, sample because, you know, a lot of the light in the universe is in those other wavelengths. But getting back to those. Uh, those kinds of um, spectrums. The web detects infrared waves that can penetrate thick clouds of gas and dust in space, which allows researchers to visualize objects that would otherwise be obscured. So that's another big thing. 
And again, light from the most distant galaxies has moved from the ultraviolet all the way through the visible and into the infrared. These are instruments that we've designed to extend the power of our vision, to go beyond what our eyes are capable of doing to see light that our eyes are not sensitive to, and to resolve objects that we could probably see with just our eyes, um, de Pascal said. I'm trying to bring out the most detail and the most richness of color and complexity that's inherent in the data without actually changing anything. And so it turns out that there's so much raw data in an image from the James Webb that it actually even needs to be scaled down before it can be translated into the visible spectrum at all. It also needs to have extraneous noise, such as cosmic rays and reflections from bright stars, stripped away to be able to reveal the true picture. An unprocessed picture basically looks like a deep black velvet sky dotted with faint points of light. Very pretty, but not exactly... uh, helpful when trying to really visualize what's going on there. So um, they had a, you can, you can see examples of, you know, unprocessed and processed um, images online. And yeah, it's definitely um, very pretty, but more like in a, when they just start turning up the lights in a um, planetarium kind of a image uh, without, with just the sort of old fashioned specks of light, uh, not even as bright as the kind of lights that you would get to stick on your uh, ceiling. (laughs) So not exactly easy to see. Representative color. Oh, sorry. Um, I think there's some connotation that goes along with quote-unquote colorizing or false color that implies there's some process going on where we're arbitrarily choosing colors to create a color image. De Pascal said, representative color is the most preferred term for the kind of work that we do because I think it encompasses the work that we do of translating light to create a true color image but in a wavelength range that our eyes are not sensitive to. And so longer wavelengths are assigned redder colors, while shorter wavelengths are assigned bluer colors, just as in the visible spectrum. And so this process is called chromatic ordering. And uh, so the amount of colors represented equals the number of wavelengths that were present in the original data. In addition, what elements are being imaged can also impact coloring. So if you're looking at the, you want to look at what elements are in specific things and you have two of them that both admit in the same color, one might be shifted to another color in order to better visualize the data behind the image. So say if you wanted to look for oxygen and nitrogen and they both admitted in red, um, you might shift one of them to green in order to be able to more precisely see where those two elements are emitting from. And uh, that's just an example off the top of my head. I don't believe that they both emit in red, just to be uh, full transparency. Um, and so, yeah, it's a process. And this process 
process is both art and science, but it is not painting a false reality. The image processors also work with instrument scientists to determine which features should be highlighted in an image. In one, the piping hot gas of a galaxy, and for instance, in another, a cool dusty trail or tail. And there are also different instruments on the web that can affect the images. When imaging Stefan's Quintet, the Miri instrument saw mostly hot dust, but when combined with the NERCAM data, a smattering of distant galaxies are seen glowing throughout the background. The team actually apparently referred to these as Skittles. To Pascal and Alyssa Pagan, a science visual visuals developer at the Space Telescope Science Institute, both worked on the web images. It's a balance between the art and the science, because you want to showcase science and the features, and sometimes those two things don't necessarily work together, Pagan explained. And in fact, the first shots of the Carina Nebula's cosmic cliffs featured more ionized blue gas than red dust. Scientists asked the imaging team to tone down the gas in order to be able to better see the structure of the dust and gas. And so, yeah, I think it is a very cool thing that they are doing and a very real thing that they are doing. And, um, you know, when people talk about, oh, all the images from NASA are CGI, it's like, it's not what you think. Like, I can show you the real picture, but that's not going to show you much. Um, and especially since you're not an astronomer who doesn't know how to interpret that kind of data. Um, and so that's frustrating. But uh, for those of us who do believe in science, uh, it's pretty amazing what people can do in order to give us these visualizations. Okay. We are going to take a break to do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we will continue to talk about cool ways of doing visualizations and uh, creating data. So please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. 
clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, you. we are back. <laughs> I hope you are back. And uh, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And so we are going to come back from talking about space and uh, talk about more earthly ways of creating images. And uh, even on the uh, earth, we also need to be able to find Uh, to be able to detect and see near-infrared light. Sensors for robots, autonomous vehicles, and computer vision continue to create new markets for sensors that are able to easily and reliably collect data in different environmental conditions. So much like the fact that, uh, much like in dust clouds, near-infrared light can penetrate rain, fog, and smoke to allow for seeing in otherwise obscured conditions. And so researchers at Huazhong University of Science and Technology, or HUST, High Silicon Optoelectronics Company, and Optical Valley Laboratory in China, or Zhanghua, as it's pronounced in Chinese, um, which is really interesting, um, sorry, uh, another podcast find. Um, I honestly didn't even know that. Um, but yeah, the Chinese do not call their country China, um, which is not frankly very surprising. Um, we don't tend to call any country what the people in it call it, but, um, I don't know, for some reason it struck me as interesting that we don't pronounce China, um, as the correct, um, form, uh, mostly because, you know, I was thinking like the Qin dynasty. Um, but anyways, 
that's a complete and utter aside. Uh, but if you ever want to spend some time down a rabbit hole, you could look at what people actually call their country versus what uh, we in the West have decided is the name of their country. Ah, <laughs> uh, goodness. So um, this team have developed a near-infrared collodial quantum dot imager or a QCD imager. Now, the instrument is described in a paper uh, in Nature Electronics. We have been working on our Q- Q- CQD imager for a long time, Zhang Tang, lead researcher of the study, told Tech Explorer. I graduated from the University of Toronto under supervision of Professor Edward Sargent, a pioneer of CQD infrared photodetectors and founder of the company Envisage. Our team at Hust's primary mission is to build a reliable near and short infrared imager with low costs. And so traditional near infrared imagers are manufactured by heterogeneously integrating an epitaxially grown photodiode array. Now, that's a lot. Uh, So the takeaways from that sentence are that the integration requires extra steps to attach to a silicon-based readout integrated circuit, or RIOC. So basically, that's the circuit part of the sensor. So basically, the detector and the circuit have to be um, put together using a bunch of extra steps because they're not created at the same time. And um, epitaxically grown just means that the array is deposited in layers that form the crystalline um, uh, composition of the um, detector. The new CQD imager is created via monolithic integration, which means um, con- uh, congruous, sorry, that means that the imager and the RIOC are created at the same time, which reduces time and cost. Conversely is the word I was looking for. <laughs> QCDs are semiconductor crystals of nanometer size that contain surfaced ligands, which allows them to disperse in solvents. The crystals have sought after optical, electronic, and physical properties, which may be used in the future for imagers, LEDs, and gas sensors. The the CQD photodiode array transfers incident photons to electrons, and the silicon-based RIOC manipulates photogenerated electrons to output image signals, Zhao explained. The monolithic integration potential enables smaller pixel size and higher resolution of CQD imager than heterogeneously integrated imager. A large breakthrough is in the cost, which is reduced due again to that ability to create the two parts at the same time. We directly deposited the sensing layer on top of the RIOC, Tang explained. Our imager's unique advantage is the monolithic integration, which enables 12-inch wafer integration and limits production costs. We started from chemicals all the way to final chips, achieving a good imager. And so they have, they have so far created an imager with a 640 by 512 pixel resolution, which is pretty good. 
uh, for a proof of concept. Our CQD imager shows the highest external quantum efficiency of 63% among the reported CQD imagers due to the developed device structure, Zhao said. The detailed presentation of our new CQD imager could could serve as a reference for researchers and technicians specializing in emerging monolithically integrated imager fields. And so... Other applications in future include high-resolution images of biological systems, veins, and matter particles. Um, And so basically a lot of different really cool applications. Now the next steps are to extend the wavelength range and resolution as well as to explore their monolithic integration technique with other sensors. Now of course that's a little bit of a booster those some of those quotes are a little bit of boosterism, which is why it was a little bit awkward. So I apologize for that. But, um, you know, I think it is really cool and interesting nonetheless. Um, but one of the things that is kind of uh, melancholy about all of this is, you know, this idea that if the world actually worked together, think about how farther along that we would be. Instead of trying to outcompete one another, we could collaborate to make better instrumentation and technology to serve everyone. But instead, we waste time with stupid political posturing and bullying. China is full of amazing scientists doing amazing work, but it's always overshadowed by the government and its actions as an antagonizer on the world stage. Sorry, I'm just feeling a bit grumpy about U.S.-China relations right now with all this ridiculous posturing around Taiwan. It has been over 100 years since Taiwan separated from mainland China, and I'm not going to pretend I know anything about the real, like, geopolitical realities of that area, but I think that... In general, people would just be a lot better off if we were able to stop thinking about ourselves in such individualistic and, uh, you know, um, regionally uh, collectivist terms. And so if we just thought of ourselves as citizens of the world. Oh my God, that sounds so silly. Um, I've, I apologize, but it, it really is one of those things that is like so frustrating to me right now. Um, just all of this war and strife for no good reason. Um, and sometimes I just have to say it out loud that it's dumb. <laughs> um, and I hope that you, uh, are okay with me doing that. I apologize. And I will now get back to the neat science. (laughs) So researchers at Caltech have made a new version of non-line-of-sight sensing that shows images in greater detail than previously achievable. Non-line-of-sight, non-line-of-sight sensing, or NLOS, is basically, as advertised, using methods to quote-unquote see something that is not in the current field of vision. Publishing in Nature Photonics, the researchers, led by Shanghui Yang, Professor of Electrical Engineering, Bioengineering, and Medical Engineering, 
as well as a Heritage Medical Research Institute investigator, detail how their system uses nearby surfaces as lenses that can be then used to indirectly image otherwise obscured objects. Now, their new method is called Uncover and uses nearby flat surfaces such as walls like a lens to view hidden objects with a remarkable amount of clarity. Previous work in NLOS has mainly focused on light from an object that is passively reflected by a surface, but since such surfaces mostly scatter light, these techniques cannot produce clear images. Uncover, however, uses wavefront shaping technology, which was not previously viable. Wavefront shaping requires the use of what is called a guide star, an approximate point source of light that allows for the details to be estimated. We know that lenses image a point onto another point. If you are looking through a bad lens with matte surfaces, the image of a point is now blurred, and the light spreads all over the place. But you can grind and polish the matte surface to navigate the light to the correct position, explains electrical engineering grad student Ruji Kao, the first author of the Nature Photonics paper. That is how a guidestone helps you in principle. It tells us where the tiny bumps are so that we can know how to correctly polish the surface. Now, the team found that the object itself could actually be used as the guide star. This allows the new technique to piece the scattered light back into a clear image. Kao notes that this imaging method could be used in autonomous vehicles, rescue missions, and other remote sensing scenarios. We can see all the traffic on the crossroads with this method. This might help the cars to foresee the potential danger that one is not able to see directly. And so um, that was one of the big uh, ways in which they suggested this could be used, which is that if you have a vehicle and you're driving along and there's someone coming at you from a side road that you can't see, then the car could all be able to detect that person or say someone's running and not paying attention and the car could then stop itself so that you would not have a collision, uh, which I think is pretty cool. Um, I am, I have very mixed feelings about autonomous cars. Um, I get that there is a lot of, um, there are a lot of good arguments for autonomous vehicles, but I am not yet convinced. I uh, am definitely not yet convinced that the algorithms are robust enough in order to really uh, sort of unleash autonomous vehicles on the road. I think that you should always, um, that there always needs to be someone who is actually able to take charge of the vehicle and to really make sure that there is human perception there. And um, yeah, obviously it is still a developing technology and as so is all of basically AI. 
And so in the future, we might be able to do better. But I have to say that I am not particularly that impressed uh, by current autonomous vehicle uh, trials. <laughs> and um, I think I've talked about this before. Um, so I don't want to belabor the point too much. But I definitely think that um, I will continue to uh, enjoy driving myself in my own car for uh, some time to come. Uh, not that I could afford a new a, a, uh, autonomous car at any point in the uh, relatively near future or potentially ever. So that's a moot point um, because, of course, that's the other thing is that these kinds of technologies are first available to the ultra-rich, um, of which we continue to have way too many. Um, but, okay, we're not going to do that tonight. <laughs> I am trying to uh, talk about cool things and not delve into uh, unfortunate things tonight. So that is very cool. And actually, there's another application. So it could be useful not just on Earth, but in future exploration of space, and especially in places like the moon or Mars or things like that. We are counting on the rovers to take images of another planet to help us develop a better understanding about that planet. However, for those rovers, some places might be hard to reach because of limited resources and power. With the non-line-of-sight imaging technique, we don't need the rover itself to do that. What is needed is to find a place where the light can reach, explained Cal. So that's very cool um, because, of course, there's also places that the rovers just can't get to because of geometry, for instance. And so uh, having rovers that have better imaging techniques to get the most out of their being on the planet um, makes a lot of sense. And I think that is pretty awesome. And so, yeah, I do think that these technologies are pretty amazing. I just, uh, that whole thing, like a lot of these are like, oh, they could be used to make autonomous cars better. <laughs> I'm just like, yes, yes, they could. However, <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So we're going to move on now to another form of visualization. Um, so this one's actually really kind of cool. I think, um, I hope you will agree. And so this time it is encoding data in specialized ink laced with polymers. Now, scientists at the University of Texas at Austin recently sent a secret message to a colleague at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell. Um, I grew up near there, so that was, that definitely uh, poked me when I saw this uh, story. I was like, hey, I've driven through there many a time. Um, and so the note written with the special ink held an encryption key for a file that contained the L. Frank Baum novel, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Their paper was published in ACS Central Science. And so that's actually a publication of the American Chemical Society. And as a absolute pure aside, if you ever make it to Philadelphia, I highly recommend a visit to their headquarters. Um, I haven't been in a decade, but when I went there, it was super neat. They had a really cool 
um, display of Bakelite objects, which I always think are really fascinating. And they had a gallery of, if you've never looked, this was really big when I was probably like 18 or 19. If you've never looked at images of alcohols um, under the microscope, you should definitely uh, do that because they are really beautiful, the images. And um, so they had a whole gallery of those um, upstairs. And so, yeah, it's a very cool place. Um, they probably have completely different things now, um, but still definitely worth a uh, visit. And so obviously alternative data storage is a big thing. And one of the ones that is most talked about is, of course, uh, DNA. And so DNA has four polymers for encoding data. And so a single gram of DNA is equivalent to over 1 billion terabytes or a zettabyte of data, which is kind of crazy. And that data can then be stored for decades or even centuries. So, you know, people are really looking into that. Now, they're also looking into uh, novel ways to do that. So recent examples of this include researchers at ETH Zurich fabricating a 3D version of the Stanford Bunny, a common test model in 3D computer graphics. Uh, and that was actually created in 1994, basically from the scan of a ceramic bunny. Um, and so it's very cute. So the printed version, uh, the 3D printed version, contained the directions for reproducing the printing with around 100 kilobytes of data stored in the figure due to the inclusion in the printer plastic of DNA containing nanobeads. Researchers at the University of Washington recorded K-pop lyrics directly onto living cells by using a DNA typewriter. Ah, K-pop. <laughs> uh, my favorite. Uh, that is one of my problematic faves. <laughs> oh, so problematic. Anyways, uh, DNA, though, can have its pitfalls. It, its pitfalls. Say that five times fast. So other ways of storing a lot of data in a small space are also being developed. So researchers at Harvard used a combination of fluorescent dyes printed onto an epoxy surface in tiny dots. The mixture of dye in each dot encoded information that was then able to be read with a fluorescent microscope. They used this technique to encode a paper on electromagnetism and chemistry by 19th century physicist Michael Faraday as well as a JPEG of Faraday himself. Researchers at Harvard also found that using non-biological polymers could do the trick. In 2019, they used commercially available oligopeptides on a metal surface to create a quick and inexpensive proof of concept. Now again, the latest research comes from researchers at the University of Texas, including co-author Eric Ad. Anslin. This team used sequence-defined polymers, or SDPs, as the storage medium. These are long chains of monomers 
that each correspond to one of 16 symbols. Because they're a polymer with a very specific sequence, the units along that sequence can carry a sequence of information, just like any sentence carries information in the sequence of letters, Anslin told New Scientist. But these are bigger than DNA and don't store as much information, since storing more data with each additional monomer becomes increasingly inefficient and makes it harder to decipher with current instrumentation. So short SDPs must be used, limiting the amount of data available for storage. But Anslin and his team have found a better way to store data. They began by using a 256-bit encryption key to encode Baum's novel into polymers using commercially available amino acids. Each sequence consisted of eight oligorithanes, each 10 monomers long. The middle eight held the key, while the end monomers served as placeholders for synthesis and decoding. The placeholders were fingerprinted with different isotope labels, such as halogen tags, to indicate where each polymer's encoded info fit into the final digital key. They then scrambled them together and used depolymerization and liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry, to decode quote-unquote, the original structure and encryption key. They then tested this out by adding the polymers into an ink created with isopropanol, glycerol, and soot. They then wrote a letter to James Ruther at UMass Lowell. The letter said, Dear Professor Ruther, I hope this letter finds you well in Lowell. The molecular encoding project is moving along nicely. I look forward to chatting soon. Best regards, Anslin Lab. Ruther's lab was able to do the same translation and decipher the novel. The team was able to store 256 bits in the SDPs without using long strands. This is the first time this much information has been stored in a polymer of this type, Anslin added, said adding that the breakthrough represents a revolutionary scientific advance in the area of molecular data storage and cryptography. The team believes that this method is viable and can be moved forward. They are hoping in future to develop a way to robotically automate both the writing and reading processes. Okay, that is all the time we have for tonight. I hope that you uh, learned some neat stuff and I hope that you have a good week. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.